This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Welcome back to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast. Brought to you with Jazz FM Business Breakfast and available on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Johnny Hart. Each week, we review the stories that made the business and market headlines with Oanda's Senior Market Analyst, Craig Earlham. And it's a very good afternoon to Craig. How are you doing? I'm really good, mate. Really good. How are you? I'm pretty good. What was your market moment of the week? It's hard to put it down to one specific moment because this week's been uh, quite turbulent, I think it's safe to say. The markets have continued to show characteristics of anxiety. We've, uh, we, we have seen the odd bounce back every now and then, but they haven't been able to hold it again. I'm sitting here today when I left. Uh, US markets were heading for another decline on the day around one and one and a half percent based on futures market. European markets were down a couple of percent uh, as well. Uh, and this had come on the back of Amazon and uh, Alphabet posting not even poor earnings, like stunning earnings, but just not as good as the markets were expecting from a forecasting perspective um, uh, with regards to it when in, in Amazon's case. The other day, there was other issues that were causing this anxiety and previous to that, it was interest rates that was causing the anxiety. The fact, the point is, no matter what it is to blame, it shows that investors are... this stampede that we see out the door every time something negative happens, it's not a good sign for the markets. Now, this isn't me forecasting the doomsday scenario. I'm not saying that markets are going to fall 20, 30, 40%. What I'm saying is that investors are are anxious at the moment, and that's been reflected in the fact that we are seeing these big volatile swings and we are seeing sharp declines at the site uh, of danger. And that's been very prevalent this week. It's worrying going into a weekend because in the absence of any stability it looks like we're going into another week of uh, of potential volatility of potential big downswings um and the question is i guess what's going to be the next trigger so are you going to call that the bull run is well and truly over no i'm not ready for that yet i I think if we look at the us for example stock markets are off the this s&p will probably be off around 10 percent at the time of speaking so we're entering into correction territory the nasdaq a little bit more but let's be honest if you look at the gains that the nasdaq has made prior to this because the tech uh, sector has performed outrageously well uh, then it's not really that big a deal if we look at the s&p now like for example it's still 40 percent up since Trump's election victory. So let's put things into perspective. These are 10% declines from extraordinarily high levels. Maybe we just got a little bit of ahead of ourselves and this is the market correcting itself to where it should be. Obviously, the end of a bull run is effectively defined as when a market drops 20%. I'm not sure we're going to get there in the US, to be honest. Europe, yeah, sure. Uh, And in some cases, I think we probably already have. In Asia, Absolutely. I think in China, for example, the Shanghai Composite fell 30% before it started to recover. Do you think Um, it's going to be, in the words of uh, Harold McMillan, events, dear boy, when it comes to the end of this bull run, when we look at what uh, may or may not happen uh, between America and China, America uh, and Iran, uh, the UK and Brexit, Italy, uh, Saudi Arabia, Russia, etc.? I think we're looking at all these events and these these are things which are contributing to people's sense of discomfort. Whether they're going to be actual contributing factors to the end of the bull run and to how deep it's going to go, it depends how many of them materialise into something that's of actual substance, because right now they're threats. You just need one or two of them to really go awry, though, don't you? Exactly, and Brexit could be one of them, but I don't think it will be. The Italian situation could be one of them probably more longer term, but I, my inkling is that they won't. it won't happen, uh, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, about what I think the coalition government is effectively up to. I'm not sure they'll necessarily be successful in what they're trying to do but that's 
another one, another risk that I just don't think will materialize. I don't see a full-blown long-term trade war between the US and China because at some point people are going to have to come to the, 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 the negotiating table. So I don't see that going. Uh, I see it lasting maybe for another six to 12 months, but I don't see it being a long term risk. And if the markets really do start to tumble, I think they'll return to the negotiating table quite quickly. Uh, so these are all underlying risks which are making people uncomfortable. I just these big, 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 big events that tend to capitulate the markets tend to be wouldn't say unforeseen because they're always foreseen by some people but they don't tend to be the obvious things which are out there so you look at 2008 the housing crisis so many people believed the house price was just going to go up and up and up no one saw this ticking time bomb that was uh, about we've got to a ticking explode. time bomb with credit though haven't we at the moment it depends which way you see it mark carney always says with credit that credit's at an all-time high but so are household earnings so as a, a credit as a percentage of household earnings it's actually way below financial crisis levels um if you want to look at where the credit's situated people people keep looking at car financing and saying well this could be a ticking time bomb but the actual size of that credit industry it, it, i wasn't thinking of small. car finance actually i was talking about the 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 naught percent credit cards that uh, are now uh, finally maturing uh, there, there were so many of them around three four years ago maybe a couple of years ago as well there still are a few uh, that uh, people may even sometimes forget about it and suddenly they get a great big interest bill and uh, they're worried yeah, I mean that that could cause a slight crunch. I'm not sure that's got the uh, the ability to cause an enormous um, amounts of. Do we know even the, what the figures are? Well, only based on again, only based on what Mark Carney at the Bank of England said about people's credit, people's incomes, and the the, the combination between the two. Because it's very difficult to really assess um, to assess who's on zero zero percent interest rates cards, who's on this. Once you, if you want to break it down to a granular level, you may be able to find some some mm. concerning numbers, but there's nothing that I've come across that's that's stands out there but, in any way but we didn't see the housing crisis coming either 10 years ago did we exactly and that's that was my point earlier we keep talking about u.s china trade war brexit yeah. italy these are things which could destabilize the economies these are things that could uh, slow growth whether these are going to be the cause of the next financial crisis i doubt it i think it's going to be something that's ticking away that we're not paying uh, too much attention to right now for example using your credit one as an ex uh, that we we saw RBS today yeah, did exactly. set aside a uh, hundred million um, to cover potential bad credit. Now I think this is probably a worst case scenario. This is things that could become bad credit if we see a no deal Brexit, for example. That is a risk. Yeah, of course it's a risk. But this is the difference between now and ten years ago. RBS are putting this money aside, and I wouldn't be surprised if other banks do follow suit. Ten years ago, you wouldn't have seen this doing it this kind of preemptive action uh, beforehand. So we maybe we are getting to a point where we have a, a better idea of these credit problems you mentioned brexit famous I mean, last words <laughs> you mentioned brexit craig i mean we thought this was going to be a big week we thought last week was going to be a big week in fact this isn't even in the list of uh, topics that you normally send me on a friday morning as to what we might be discussing it's been an odd one isn't it oh it's been boring hasn't it i mean i thought this was going to be a huge month right this was yeah. this was the month by which Everything had to be agreed and done and give six months for 28 countries to ratify these in Parliament. We're not even close. Like we, we, We're still talking about the backstop to the backstop, whose backstop is a backstop. And we're, we're talking about transitions. We're talking about borders. We're talking about Irish sea borders. We're talking about VAT. We're and we saw the Prime Minister getting a relatively easy time in the House of Commons as well, which uh, came to, as a surprise to many. 
The problem is, I mean, she gets such a hard time outside the House of Commons. It's like, uh, well, we're, I think we're probably just used to the constant bashing. So you don't like, think it's the right wing of the Conservative Party suddenly deciding, well, you know, well, we've just got to get a deal of sorts. No, because, I mean, if we look at the how many letters there are now calling for a leadership challenge, what are we up to, 50, 46, 47? Uh, it's 48 that are needed for a leadership challenge. Or, or, or maybe this is just a threat. Maybe this is just a way yeah. of imposing pressure and you are one letter away and this is all extremely calculated and we're reading uh, maybe a little too much into the, what these letters mean. But I think the pressure is constantly being ramped up and, they're cons- and we're constantly seeing this pressure applied, but not necessarily in this normal, uh, in this normal, normal forum. Okay, oil has gone down in price this week, partially due to the global sell-off. The Khashoggi affair looked like it might spook uh, some speculators. That didn't really seem to have much of an effect, but the sell-off, as I said, has helped to uh, ease prices. Difficult to bet where oil is going in the next few weeks, particularly with the loss of supply once the Iran sanctions kick in. Yeah, the question is going to be how much supply is actually lost because last time there were sanctions in place and some would suggest some have suggested that the previous sanctions against Iran were probably more severe. Uh, it, it was on, they lost around, I think it was around half of their uh, production was where had to was forced to go offline and output dropped by around 50%, I think it was. So in that sense, then you wonder how is this going to be as devastating as, uh, as on, on the face of it, it may have looked. Also, you've got Saudi Arabia who are willing to increase uh, output. They're currently pumping at around 10.7 billion, 10.7 million barrels a day. Billion would be extreme. Um, One wonders perhaps what deals might be done behind the scenes because of this uh, awful Khashoggi business. Well, this is the thing. I mean, the cynic in me really does say it was. Isn't this isn't this convenient coincidence? Uh, Let's see if a deal can be struck by the deal maker himself. I'll brush this under the rug if you uh, ease the situation on me with regards to oil, because he's been trying to pressure OPEC for some time to reduce out to increase output to offset oil prices. If that starts to happen in the lead up to the midterms, he can almost claim an extra victory. But I guess that would be. A difficult one for even Trump to do so close. It depends to... as well as if, if these audio tapes perhaps uh, came out and uh, we knew a little bit more about what happened. It'd be more difficult for Trump to do that, wouldn't it? Yeah, the, uh, I think th- th- this is a, an extremely complex situation. Like I say, there's the cynic in me that thinks X uh, and then the other the, the part of me is looking at everything that's happening and to be honest I, it's, I struggle to get my head around it the Saudis have changed their story three times now yeah. they're now suggesting it's premeditated I mean um, at what point are we going to see some form of consistent story the, again the cynic in me suggests that a deal will be done and that this is just going to slowly disappear out of the headlines and be forgotten about and we'll be looking back in six months going hold on what actually happened there did we actually get a resolution to this did someone decide that the Saudis had done it intentionally unintentionally linked not linked it's I, I that's that's Personally, our it's helped Putin a bit, hasn't it? It's let him off the hook a bit. With uh, the, if you think about the Skripal affair, that was uh, uh, n- not not great for the Russians. And now we've got an example of a Western ally uh, allegedly behaving exactly the same way, if not worse. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's 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 not it's not a nice thing to discuss. Uh, I always find with these situations because you're speculating over what sounds like a pretty gruesome death yeah. of a person. And um, so speculating on who's done what and why, um, always I find a bit uh, a little bit difficult. I guess from an oil situation, though, we we are looking at the Saudis. They they they've shown a willingness to increase output to 11 million barrels a day. Said they could even get up to 12 million, maybe, maybe even using reserves. So that should offset a lot of the lost uh, output from Iran, which would ease the pressure. I find it really interesting that today. 
uh, or yesterday overnight the Saudi oil minister, um, I think it's Khalid Al-Fali, um, came out and was suggesting that they actually think that we could be heading to an uh, a, a oversupplied uh, scenario, suggesting that they could actually reduce output rather than increase it. And I'm wondering if that's got anything to do with the fact that oil prices have actually fallen quite quickly. Uh, well, I think we're around 50 to 20 percent off now uh, over the course of three or four weeks uh, in oil. So this is a, quite a dramatic dive, maybe something they didn't foresee when they were agreeing to fill the void left by Iran and he's thinking hold on we've actually got a budget here that we need to finance um, obviously a lot of uh, Saudi oil money does go to actually financing the country um, financing welfare state etc and they're thinking well we actually we still need to fill this budget so we can't have oil prices falling too far because we're being overly generous and he's trying to talk up the market a little bit well depending on how long these falls go this could have an effect uh, medium term on interest rates couldn't it yeah I mean Potentially. Uh, I always think that the Bank of England, Federal Reserve, the ECB, etc. look past volatile oil prices. They tend to focus on core, core levels of inflation. Now, don't get me wrong, the secondary effects uh, of oil price movements do tend to have an impact on core uh, slightly as well. But well particularly I think, if it can bring inflation down over here in the UK to around 2%. Yeah, exactly. And I think the Bank of England anyway is uh, likely to hold off a little bit longer. With everything that's happening with Brexit right now, I said they were a bit mad to move last time. They'd be, they'd be absolutely crazy to do anything in the next few months, I think, especially, like you say, with inflation tri- nipping down. I think, yeah, dropping oil prices. We, we have to remember as well, actually, this drop in oil price actually offsets the rise in oil prices two months previous True. to that. So we're kind yeah. of back where we were, um, which is why, I guess, central banks do overlook these volatile movements. Talking of interest rates, um, we saw the European Central Bank uh, not only keeping their rates on hold, but keeping policy unchanged. And that was amidst uh, amid the slowest growth recorded in almost two years for the Eurozone. And uh, of course, this uh, ongoing spat between EU chiefs and Italy, which we'll talk about again in a minute. Um, I suppose no, no, no immediate surprise uh, with that decision from the ECB. No, I mean, I don't think we learned an enormous amount from that ECB meeting. And I think, uh, as we'll come on to in a sec, I actually do think that the Italy situation may have played a part in that. For one, Draghi was very reluctant to discuss Italy. He always is reluctant to uh, delve into any political situation and tries to keep things very professional, which is obviously to um, his credit and something that he's probably learned some uh, a thing or two from Carney uh, prior to the referendum. Uh, but I, I equally, I don't think the ECB were ever going to do anything to try and ease the pressure on Italy. So I don't think the ECB were ever going to plan to come out and say, maybe we'll hold off till the end of 2019 for the first interest rate hike ease the pressure on the euro actually the euro is not under pressure at all actually it's actually been dropping a little bit but drop that a little bit further and he's regularly talked down the euro in the past ease pressure on uh, yields in the periphery uh, and take some of the pressure off the italian coalition government i don't think he's he or the rest of the ecb wanted to do anything to aid the italian government ahead of these uh, these the, these talks with the european commission so i think this kind of neutral stance unchanged approach was broadly in line with what most people were expecting now, the European Commission rejecting uh, Italy's draft budget for next year, that, that is the first time the EU executive has ever sent a member state back to the drawing board over spending plans. It, uh, it's quite amazing when you think that is the first time, but we've never had a populist government like this in Europe, have we? No. Um, so this was the interesting thing with the Italian budget. We, people didn't really know what to expect. 
So initially, Italy was in te- was meant to be was thought to be preparing a budget around the kind of one point six percent of GDP fiscal deficit levels, uh, with gra- the idea of gradually bringing it down and reducing debt over time. Then the people went, when the coalition government came into place, it was came well, it may be closer, maybe closer to two percent. So markets uh, and investors were quite taken aback when they saw this 2.4% each year for the next three years because this is quite a significant difference. And I know we're dealing in fine numbers here, but when you're posting growth of below 1% and it's not a blip when this is something that you've been doing for decades, that is going to lead to higher borrowing and higher debt. Now, for some perspective, Italy's debt to GDP ratio is 132%. That's the second highest in the Eurozone. And if I'm not mistaken, it's one of the top 10 in the developed world. So we're not talking tiny amounts of debt. And the problem with that is people say, well, you can borrow money, you can keep borrowing money, keep borrowing money, you've got a central bank there that can print money, buy your debt, it's all good. Well, it's not all good because you the the rating ratings agencies are rating how uh, how capable you are as a country of uh, of paying off that debt um when the bill comes due and obviously that usually involves rolling over the debt to an extent so you need not only to have the cash to give one set of investors money back you've then got to float more debt and have people interested at a reasonable at a reasonable rate. I think I saw a stat this week that Italy's annual debt repayments cost the same amount as their entire education budget. That is, or more, that is staggering. And that is one of the problems with going into these kind of levels of debt. You're you're taking tax receipts all year and it's, it's, it's it's, what is it, like March, April before you even finish paying off the the, the interest payments for that year. It's stupid at these levels. And this is what the European Commission, when you're trying to find alignment in the Eurozone, you can't have one country just constantly racking up debt because that does, there is a domino effect here that does have implications for everyone around it. So they're looking at the Italian situation and they're saying, you're in a bad enough situation it is and this needs to be addressed. It can't just be ignored. You can't just borrow and spend your way out of these problems again and again and again. And they, we, we... we have a situation now where Italy believes that they have to spend in order to try and get themselves out of the situation because of the low growth. Now, I do sympathise, though. You can't just cut your way out of these situations either. But there has to be some form of compromise. There has, has to be some form of, uh, of, way, uh, of way around this that both sides can agree on. The problem that Italy have got now, though, is they were downgraded this week. Moody's downgraded Italy on Monday to one notch above junk. The outlook was stable, which means they're unlikely to downgrade them again in the near future. S&P, um, I believe today, are due to um, release their um, rating uh, update for Italy. And they're expected to downgrade them as well. That will take them to one notch above junk there as well. The problem there is that yields are already very high on Italian debt, which is why the debt servicing cost is so high. If both of these rating agencies in the, in the not-too-distant future downgrade um, Ital- Italian debt one more time into junk status, this could creates havoc because there is a number of funds number of sort of fund managers who can only buy investment grade debt so if you've got less interest in your debt what's going to happen to the yield it's going to go up and up and up and up and this is where it becomes an unsustainable debt spiral and then all of a sudden you're talking you're not talking about well we want to spend 2.4 percent of our gdp uh, sorry a deficit of 2.4 percent you're going to the ecb cap in hand saying we need a bailout talking of budgets uh, weirdly, we've got a budget uh, this coming Monday in the UK. Um, I 
cannot remember when we've ever had a budget on a Monday, can you? I don't think we have. Not no. in my lifetime, uh, which is going back a bit, let me tell you. <laughs> and it's a strange one as well, because we've got the huge elephant in the room, Brexit. So perhaps whatever Philip Hammond delivers on, on Monday is largely irrelevant uh, because he doesn't really know what the state of the British economy is going to be in the next two to five years until he knows the outcome of the Brexit negotiations. Yeah, I don't think there's too many people that envy Philip Hammond right now because all he has to do is take a completely clouded outlook, create, utilise forecasts which have been generated on that clouded outlook, go through the public finances and try and find ways to reduce spending here, there and everywhere. He has to end austerity. He needs to find an extra £20 billion uh, for the NHS by 2022. I mean, he has got a bit more money in the pot, hasn't he? He's got a little bit more money in the pot, but not that much more. Like I say, we're in a situation now where we have no idea what our relationship with the EU is going to be past March. So uh, I, I really, really don't envy him. Uh, and people are looking at like uh, clever ways in which he could try and trim the budget here, raise a little bit of tax here, do this here. We're talking about teeny, tiny little changes. They're going to bring in a couple of hundred million there, lose a couple of hundred million here. And I know that sounds like a lot of money, but when you're talking in budgetary terms, it's not actually uh, enormously... Not when the National Health Service cost £120 billion pounds to run each year exactly and you're trying to find an extra 20 billion pounds for it and like i say ending austerity i think is always what is one of the most interesting ones because theresa may made this a very clear part of the tory party conference we are going to end austerity she said in good line on numerous occasions since we're going to end austerity she said it this week in the house of commons we're going to end austerity what exactly does that mean does that mean that any austerity measures which have been imposed which are running now over the next few years are going to stop dead in the water or does it mean that once they have run their course so as an example uh, the institute of fiscal studies said that out of 15 billion pounds of cuts to working age benefits announced since 2015 and scheduled to run until 2022 2023 only 7 billion have only so far come into effect does austerity mean that those 8, 8 billion are not going to come into effect or does it and he's got to find another 8 billion or does that mean that they are going to run and actually this austerity is over? It's nothing more than a line. I hate the term rabbits out of hats. Could there be a headline grabber? I can't help but think that Theresa May just stole it from him, to be honest, because she she mentioned the fuel duty uh, freeze. Um, she's Not exciting, though, really, was it? No, but she but she's mentioned the, the end of austerity. That would have been the headline grabber. She really mm. did just... Uh, 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 Perhaps he should have one. given us an alternative budget, sort of with or without... Uh, a deal yeah but again how do you then price that up and then are you, yeah. you then are you seen to I be scaremongers well <laughs> i mean to be honest you wouldn't be the first person who's probably suggested it or at least thought uh, that this is a this is a uh, a possibility but he'd be, be accused of project fear as well wouldn't he? exactly so um that, that <laughs> i think that's not feasible to be honest I know he's only just recently, last couple of years, changed the budget from March to uh, from the spring to the autumn. But I think the spring would have just made so much more sense. Just kick the can down the road six months. Kick the can down the road 12 more months. This is not the time to be doing a budget. Like uh, This isn't the time to be raising interest rates. But this is absolutely Well, you're suggesting he could have actually suspended the budget. Yeah, I mean, what's... I don't, is he allowed I just, to do that even... I mean, he, he moved it, so I'm sure he's got the power to suspend it. I just don't see the point, to be quite honest, in a budget now because... All forecasts could change. I think we're going to see a budget that's effectively going to be based on. To be, I think we're going to see a budget that's going to be effectively based on Theresa May's um, plan for Brexit, and 
the chances are, I've said before, I think that's the plan that's effectively going to get through. So maybe the differences, the changes in the budget in the future aren't going to be too severe. But the problem is you're just leaving yourself wide open because if we do head for no deal Brexit, if we Theresa May does get that 48th letter and does get um, replaced, if the EU decides to play hardball, if any one of a number of things happen, then all of a sudden you're coming back to the budget table at any year's time. You're saying, well, remember this, well, this has changed. Apart from the budget, anything else we should look out for next week? Yeah, again, I say this every week. Politics is such a big driver right now. All these political stories are going nowhere. And the fact that the markets are now, um, depending on the day in freefall, I think it's just going to be a crazy week once again. Uh, We've also got the Bank of England next week, which we've briefly touched on today. I don't really expect anything to come from that, let's be honest. I just think they'd be crazy to try and um, do too much right now, especially given the fact the markets are as they are. We've got the Bank of Japan as well earlier on in the week, uh, which will probably be no more interest in the Bank of England. But let's wrap things up on Friday with the non on payrolls because that's the one that could really shake things up uh, and it's one going to be one of these is good news going to be bad news bad news good news again if we see a really strong jobs report strong wage growth are we going to see people freak out again because they start to foresee rate hikes um i think that's going to be the most interesting thing that of next week especially as uh, which we didn't touch on earlier we've got the new um vice chair of the Federal Reserve, who was appointed, who who spoke for the first time yesterday, um, and he effectively re- reiterated Jay Powell's speech uh, a few weeks ago, saying that there's a few more rate hikes to come, and that's the right course of action. Can't imagine that Donald Trump has regretted an appointment quite so quickly, given everything he said about the Federal Reserve over the past few months and what he said about Jay Powell since. I think it's going to be fascinating uh, next week. Uh, Very, very interesting week to come. And thank you for joining us. Have a very good weekend. Cheers, you too. That's Craig Earlham, Oanda Senior Market Analyst in London. This has been the Oanda Market Insights Podcast. Of course, we're available on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. Have a very good week. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.